Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, forward prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to Outward for the month of November. I'm Brian Lauder, editor of Outward, and I have a semi-correction from last month's episode. <gasps> My mom confirms that while I did not play with dolls per se, she said that, quote, you liked a talking robot that you <laughs> that asked you science questions, end quote. Um I checked this. This is true. Shout out to all my fellow 2XL fans out there. Uh, the smartest talking toy robot in the world. Does that count as a doll? I don't know. Maybe. I mean, it was like the size of a doll, but you put cassette tapes in it and then it would like ask you, it was like, a, it had like ABCD buttons and you, it would be like a trivia thing. It was oh great. I, I did love it very much. You just and loved sort of talked to it a lot. You loved learning so much. That's me. <laughs> I'm Christina Cotarucci, a staff writer at Slate and host of The Waves, Slate's podcast about women and gender. And it's my birthday month this month, which means ah. my wife was not allowed to complain when I forced us to watch yet another Kristen Stewart movie last weekend. <laughs> it's my choice all month long. And we're joined this month by a special guest who you've heard from before. I'm Ramon Alam. I am one of Slate's care and feeding advice columnists, and I am in recovery from the shock of the end of daylight savings time. Same Z's. So tough. Man, it's really been brutal, and it's also been quite cold in New York the past couple days, and I just feel underprepared. Mm -mm. Yeah, I'm not ready either. Yeah, it's been cold here in D.C. too. I, I've been wearing my fuzziest garments indoors and out. Um, so this month, because we are gearing up for the end of the year and Thanksgiving and the holidays, and there's a lot of opportunities for multi-generational gatherings in our mm. near future, we wanted to talk about kids. How do kids learn about gender and sexuality? How we teach them about gender and sexuality? Uh, and also how they've been occasionally uh, weaponized to support various political agendas. You know, when we talk about raising kids or being good neighbors and friends and role models to kids, we're talking about a lot more than just kids. We're talking about the values we promote, the world we want to build, the kinds of futures people imagine for themselves. So today, I'm very excited for the topics we have on deck. We're going to kick things off with a special edition of Straight Studies, where we will bring in a representative from the straight community to chat with us about how parents and other adults and kids' lives shape their views on gender and sexuality, or don't. Then we're going to talk to Laura Edwards-Leeper, a professor at Pacific University who specializes in child psychology and gender identity. Um, she's going to talk to us about caring for trans children and what a recent highly politicized custody battle over a trans kid says about the discourse uh, in politics today. And we're going to recommend some items from the queer canon that we would recommend for the kids and possibly adults in your life. But first, we're going to kick things off with our usual round of pride and provocations. Christina, what did you bring this month? I have a pride. 
I am proud this month of Robin Crawford, who just published her new book, A Song for You, My Life with Whitney Houston. Um, Mm, I haven't read the whole thing, but I've read some bits and pieces of it. Robin, of course, was, you know, Whitney Houston's best friend for for most of her life and all of her career. Um, They met when they were summer camp counselors in New Jersey as teenagers. And from several people's accounts, it sounds like, you know, Crawford was one of the few truly supportive and caring presences in Whitney Houston's life, which was, of course, marked by abuse and exploitation at, at various points. And, you know, Crawford writes very beautifully about the the early moments in their relationship and the joy that they brought each other, their deep connection. She writes that, you know, they never really talked about labels like lesbian or gay, but they were physically and emotionally intimate from very early on in their relationship. Although um, the physical part, she writes, stopped once Houston got a big record deal with Arista because, you know, she thought it would it would harm her career. But, you know, it really, it even more so than the specifics of this book and what I read so far is it gives me pride to see that Robin Crawford is finally able to talk about the truth of their relationship and sort of take the narrative back from from everyone else who's been talking about it. I mean, it's it was the the subject of um, much gossip and mm-hmm. sort of mean spirited rumor at the time when when Whitney Houston was alive. Um, so I see this as her sort of taking that narrative back from people who hated them for their relationship or who used rumors to portray it as something scandalous, um, which, you know, it, it probably would have been at the time had they been open about their relationship. Um, and, and I think she's doing right by Whitney Houston. Um, I know Brandon Tensley, rest in peace, um, has talked about this on the show. Um, you know, (laughs) once someone leaves this podcast, they're dead to me. Now, um, you know, Brandon has talked a lot about and Mm. written about how, how very smart and attuned Whitney Houston was to the ways that she needed to portray herself, um, sometimes painfully or disingenuously in a way to succeed within the sort of raced and gendered confines of, popular music in America. And so I think this is a it's a worthy addition to to you know that that public narrative of Whitney Houston's life. That's nice to hear because I think it could so easily seem exploitative. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, if you but you've actually read it and looked at it and are saying that there's something deeper here and so that's reassuring because when I when I saw the news of the book that was my first instinct and then my second was to just feel so sad about yeah, you know yeah. that she died so young, and she just had this talent that was really baffling and astonishing. Her yeah. talent, you know, yeah. it's so sad. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that that's it's treated well as uh, as well. Um, Ramon, are you proud or provoked? You know, I actually am really torn about whether I am proud or provoked. Um, I'm going to talk about a viral video, which is so unlike me. Um, a couple of days ago, a young teenager in Indiana um, went viral. I'm making air quotes for um, <laughs> a video in which he he is an out gay kid and he was being taunted by a bully with you know the sort of typical epithet and he fought back he punched this kid and oh, yes. mm-hmm. really uh, stood up for himself and it is very hard to watch because i think most of uh, most gay people remember hearing that as children themselves and sort of wished in that moment that they would have fought back but of course, you don't want violence to be a part of the toolkit that kids are using to get through just being at school. So 
I guess I'm neither proud nor provoked, but I'm sort of happy that it exists so that people can have this irrefutable evidence of what it feels like, that mm-hmm. that the words are a kind of violence too, and it's a kind of violence that kids who are different have to navigate daily. And, you know, every kid has a breaking point. And when you're 15 and you're full of testosterone and just sort of like your mind's not fully grown up, you can't really be blamed for physically lashing out. And I just, I felt so sad for that kid watching it. And I felt so sad watching people kind of celebrate it Mm. also. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of like, I don't know if this is the right term, but like, back projection you're right it's like like i wish right that we wish we had done that but that's not really what we want i mean i think it is like like you said it is good that this you know perhaps some people think that this kind of thing doesn't happen anymore or that it doesn't hurt but that it doesn't hurt and what are the consequences and so yeah that that part of it is is uh useful i guess but it is it is sort of sad also at the same time um so I have a pride. It's sort of a small thing, but a thing that I really love. Um, and it is pride at uh, queer waiters <laughs> in restaurants who make a point of connecting with you, with the customer, over queerness. Um, I was reminded of how much I like this recently by uh, going to a new restaurant in my neighborhood um, with one of my partners. And uh, the waiter came up sort of clocked us I think immediately as as being together uh, treated us that way which was like a nice thing at first but then proceeded before he uh, even took our orders to ask us our signs <laughs> so, so that was a clear like a clear like okay like girl we're like here together um, and so we, we discussed that and that like had some bearing on the menu which was that we chose which was nice um, uh, and then he made a point like sort of later on and during the meal of like mentioning his boyfriend and um, you know just just like making us feel very much like we were in the hands of another queer person and and, and that was very warm and lovely um and of course it formed a nice association with this new restaurant so we'll be back uh not because not just because the food was very good uh ronald's in harlem if anybody (laughs) wants to go uh but because of the just coolness of of this waiter uh sort of acknowledging our shared uh queerness together that's so lovely that's so cute that's such a like sesame street story Mm -hmm. you know like he even wrote a little cute little note on our, like, the, it was pizza. We had, like, a box to take home, and he wrote just, like, a little, like, thanks for coming in, yeah. like, blah, blah, blah. So, Aww. yeah. This Good reminds writer. me of one of my favorite things to do, which uh, is pretend that they've gotten it all wrong, even when you're so obviously queer. Like, I <laughs> recall a time that my friends and I went out. There were, like, maybe seven of us. Um, all of whom were queer, about half of whom were, like, gender nonconforming. Like, it was very obvious what was what the sexuality situation was at our table. Um, And at the end, like, we all happened to have, like, Bank of America debit cards or something. Sorry, (laughs) I know that that's, like, an evil corporation, and as queers, we should do better. Anyway, we the, the waiter who was queer was sort of like, oh, LOL, is this, like, the official lesbian debit card? And we were like, I was like, we're not gay. Like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> and the so look rude. of panic on his face was incredible. <laughs> and then I was like, haha, just kidding. And he was like, oh, my God, thank God. Oh, oh that's so It was rude. a really fun and mean joke <laughs> to play. <laughs> Try it out sometime. Uh, I was um, I was in Fort Worth just this past weekend visiting my husband who's been working there for the past couple of weeks and we were with the kids and we went out for tacos one morning. This is the inverse of Brian's story. Oh no! We went out for tacos one morning and uh, we had a, you know we had a lovely waiter and then at the end he said uh, he looked at us and said 
do you want separate checks? And I was like, what is the calculus here? We're here yeah. at 9 o'clock in the morning with our children. Oh my God. And I guess he was just like, well, obviously you're just like two guys who happen to know each other having breakfast together. With the wives are at kids. home. And- yeah. yeah. Your yeah. wives are getting the pedicures. Men- and you guys are, of that. It was really, and this is not the first time this has happened. It happens at yeah. restaurants, typically not in New York City. And mm-hmm. But I actually think it's kind of sweet and funny. Yeah, yeah, that's that's so wild. <laughs> Just yeah. the yeah, the backflips he had to do to do that. Um, <laughs> homophobia is a bitch. Um, okay, TM, S- TM, yeah. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Well, speaking of straight people, uh, in honor of all the straight waiters out there who don't understand what's happening at the table, they serve. Uh, we'd like to welcome our straight correspondent, Allison Benedict. Welcome, Allison. Hello. I'm happy to be here. So as I said at the beginning of the episode, uh, we wanted to talk about kids in part because we have so many family gatherings coming up in the future. Um, but for me, I was thinking about this this month because, you know, in our last episode, we talked about Mattel's new gender neutral doll. And uh, my niece came to visit me. She's three recently. And I had her play with the doll. And, um, you know, I was sort of like very performatively like, this doll can be any gender. And she's like, (laughs) you know, clearly doesn't understand what gender is, but was very excited about the variety of clothing that she could possibly put on the doll. She did understand, though, when I was like, you know, this doll could be a boy or a girl. Like, it's a he or it's a she. And then she was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then kind of like used pronouns that differed throughout the course of her play. I think she finally settled on a he, him pronoun, but, you know, dressed the doll in all manner of feminine clothing. Um, But it got me thinking about, you know, how kids conceive of gender and sexuality and what sorts of influence people, parents, aunts and uncles, um, friends and neighbors can actually have on a kid and how much they sort of figure out on their own or glean from pop culture. Um, So I'm really excited to have multiple parents in this discussion. And I'll put it to you guys first. Do you feel any sort of duty or, or compulsion to instill any sort of ideas about gender and sexuality in your kids? I think it's inevitable that a parent will kind of instill their politics in their kid. And as gender and uh, sexual identity have become sort of like staple parts of the political discourse, they've become things that are just part of what you talk about. So when my kids my kids were old enough when Hillary Clinton was running for president that we could have that conversation about what it is or what it meant to us as adults to see a woman running for president and what that meant to the culture. And so... There's just a familiarity there that's an extension of being a sort of like liberal New York parent. And so gender falls within that more comfortably now, I think, than it did when I was a child myself. Um, But the flip side of that is that I am a gay dad. And part of like the worst kind of thinking that's sort of like anti-gay parenting is the idea that you are somehow indoctrinating your kid with, you know, who knows what, like, as though gayness were, a, you know, a communicable disease or something. And so then there is a sensitivity there 
in us as parents to, you know, there's just a sensitivity there. But also, now that I have children, I realize that you can't actually even give them your political values. Do you mean a sensitivity, though, like you feel a certain pressure to... To not be perceived as, like, programming our kids with some kind of, like, to be gay or just, like, teaching them that, like, boys can wear skirts or something. Right. Even though, of course, boys can wear skirts. So, like, it's it's hard to, it's hard to get a handle on what's, you know... We, in so many ways, we are such square parents, right? Like we drive, a, <laughs> we drive a minivan and we go to like soccer or whatever. And um, and I want, and it's this is all like an internal struggle of are we trying not to make them into sissies because we are afraid of being accused mm-hmm. of indoctrinating them somehow? And at the same time. I think that the very notion of being a sissy is like ridiculous and old fashioned. And of course, little boys can wear skirts and push strollers and all of that stuff that like modern parents encourage in their children. Well, so I I mean, what you said at first, we have a similar dynamic in that just in our household, we talk about politics a lot. So, um, you know, we talk about racism, we talk about income inequality, we definitely talk about I definitely feel I think the way you phrased it was like, if you feel a certain duty and duty implies some kind of like greater external responsibility and i think i do feel that when it comes to sexism like Mm -hmm. you know whatever we have all there are all those books there's so many books like the rad american women and 25 great female scientists like i'm surprised that they even know that men can be scientists (laughs) (laughs) but but when it comes to but when it comes to like you know when it comes to sexuality and like gender fluidity that stuff i would say like i feel like we are less out like out in front of and we kind of take those conversations as they come and it's much more about like I feel a duty to make sure my children are comfortable being who they are and happy and feel supported but I don't think we've introduced that many conversations about like what it means to be transgender transgender rights or gender fluidity we tend to take those conversations i guess more as as, as they come like when if the kids come to us and ask about things i feel like in our like sort of day to day there's a lot of like just it feels very um basic but a lot of like oh our middle son like he loves glittery jewelry and so we're like it's supportive of his love of glittery <laughs> glittery jewelry or like we've encouraged him to like take a dance class because he loves to dance and he feels that dance is like a girly thing and he doesn't want to do it all these like extremely like feels like you know it doesn't feel different than uh, than a conversation parents might have had with their kids five years ago. Hmm. Um, so Are they I, having those conversations in school, though, about identity and about... Because, um, like, I've heard my kids use the word transgender uh, based on something that they're hearing in school. Yeah. So is that happening in your school system? Yeah, I mean, I think the baseline knowledge is just is different it's, now. Yeah. And the baseline, yeah. like, I don't what the word is, like, tolerance i guess like mm-hmm. it's not you know just i don't know what it was like for you guys when you were growing up but for them like whatever just having friends who have two dads or two moms yeah. that's just not a thing yeah. it's like not mm-hmm. a thing at all and so we don't really even talk about yeah. it yeah uh, and i don't know if that's good or bad because maybe it is maybe they are more curious in their mind and i just sort of take it for granted that they take it for granted that it's incredible how much has changed in some ways i mean you know when I was growing up, it definitely was a thing to learn that some adult was gay. And and certainly there were very few out gay kids. And I grew up in New Hampshire, which is, you know, more or less socially liberal and, and was at the time when I was growing up. But, you know, when we found out that, for instance, my student council advisor in high school was gay, 
it wasn't like a shock and and nobody was nobody that I witnessed was like homophobic toward her, but it still was a big deal. And like I think we thought it was very like cool and different. Um, but it's also incredible how much hasn't changed. Like just to hear that your kid thinks, um, you know, dance class is girly and he might have a little like um, reluctance to participate in something like that. Like I I think there are so many norms that are incredibly. Um, persistent. Mm -hmm. And so the first thing I think about is how do we teach kids and raise kids? And so whenever I think about, you know, do I want kids or, or, or what does it mean to be an influence on, or, or even just in relationship with the kids in my life, my friend's kids or my sister's kids, I'm like, how do I indoctrinate them? Like kind of exactly what you were saying, Ruman, that <laughs> yeah. people hope yeah. gay people aren't doing. I am a little bit like, how do I indoctrinate them? Because even though, you know, there might not be a way to turn your kid gay or turn your kid straight for that matter. Um, I I do think that they're, when kids are trying to figure out who they are, there are so many barriers to a kid being able to explore being gay or being trans and 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 even to realize, even if, even if from a young age they feel that that might be true for them, even to realize that, like, A, I can be that, and no matter who I am, what I look like, like, that label or that lifestyle or identity could fit me. And then also that, you know, that you could have a great future in any one of those identity groups. Like, I just remember, especially if if you're not gay, not straight, but maybe like bi or pan or something, and it, it doesn't necessarily feel wrong to you to be in a, you know, relationship with somebody of a different gender, like, it, it might take you a really long time to even recognize that it's possible for you to find fulfillment in relationship with somebody of the, your same gender. It could just be the case that these things naturally require time and maturity as an individual. And I think that the way that you actually indoctrinate is by adult presence. Like, you remember this yeah. lesbian um, figure from your own childhood. Mm -hmm. Like, it does make an impact. And, like, it's not about indoctrination. It's just about providing for kids a very visible example of, like, the multiple ways that they could be an adult. I think that makes, that's a, that makes a huge difference. There's, like, there's also... There's some level of like kind of engineering and parenting that I think is really hard to achieve. Like you hear people talk about like I didn't my kids didn't just like I didn't buy my boys trucks. They yeah. just were drawn to trucks. And then and, and but then some, you know, there are some parents who would certainly like they wouldn't buy trucks, right? They mm -hmm. would only buy like gender neutral toys mm -hmm. or gender neutral clothes or it's like it's like a lifestyle yeah. to yeah. do that. Yeah. It's intense. Yeah. And I frankly like I just don't parent like that in other parts of of the parenting life either and it feels it feels I mean maybe this is just a cop-out but it feels extremely overwhelming and like it has to be like your main priority to work that way whereas it, whereas having like all different kinds of people in, in your life yes. um, feels full and wonderful <laughs> and yeah. like how you're how you would want your life to be I think that's so so I, I I'm hanging back in this conversation a little bit because I um, I can't really remember the last time I spoke Spoke to a child, um, <laughs> so I, I don't. I don't want to like speak out of school about like that. You're part welcome of it. to babysit. Sure, maybe I should. Yeah. Maybe that's a good idea. The um, kids need a, a gay presence in their life. Yeah, yeah. and I do yeah, look forward. Yeah. I do definitely look forward to you know perhaps one day maybe being like a gay uncle. Um, that would be very fun. I would be into it. But what I wanted to say was like to this idea of having like many different kinds of adults in the child's life as a as a way of sort of modeling possibility. That is 
That seems to me to be something that is so um, perhaps regionally specific. I'm thinking about like in my own childhood, I didn't have any of that in terms of uh, other gay people, at least that were out about it. There Now, in retrospect, I am aware of some people who were gay, but um, in South Carolina in, you know, the 90s, uh, it wasn't discussed. Um, and so I don't think I really knew uh, the word until, like, way late and definitely didn't figure out that it had anything to do with, like, an identity or me uh, until, you know, until I got to college, uh, until I came to New York. Um, and so, you know, the, the availability of all of those model, those role models in, in a child's life, I think it's just, is so dependent on where you live and what the kind of culture of that place is. Um, and of course, you know, do your parents have a lot of friends and like all of that, but, um, that seems like something that if you live, if you live in a place that's not New York or not, you know, a, a city, um, maybe you do have to engineer it into their lives a little bit if you want that influence there. Well, Mattel has a new gender-neutral goal. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Thinking about this also um, made me wonder about the ways we think about heterosexuality and homosexuality as sexualities versus identities. Like when I think about the ways even just very young children get a sense of what's normal and you know what what does a normal family look like it's it's not just you know I, I think a lot of people would say like oh well what don't impute sexuality onto like characters for instance that you're exposing young children to but I mean every story that that children absorb from a very young age or most stories have like parents for instance mm-hmm. or a family structure and uh, almost all the time I mean besides like books specifically written to counteract the like uh heterocentric like worldview of children's books like every other uh cultural product children absorb from my perspective is has straight parents and like those are people in a romantic and sexual relationship even though sexuality doesn't play into it at all like the their identity as straight people does and and i i wonder you know as kids are learning about like what what do families look like? What sorts of relationships do adults have? Like when they're getting that sort of message from um, the stuff that they're watching, like it's not just about sexuality. I mean, it, and, you know, kids, of course, like do have sexualities and understand sexuality. I think kids from a very young age are like making their dolls have sex and things like that. It's now a rule on Outward that every episode we have to talk about dogs, like dolls having sex. I'm pretty sure we talked about this last time, too. There should be, like, a little sound effect. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, it just says to me, like, teaching kids about, um, you know, queerness, for instance, isn't the same as teaching them about sex. And I think that's something that the conservatives who will pass these, like, no promo homo laws where, like, teachers in schools can't even talk about um, you know, queerness at all. Like, I, I think they're, it's it's telling that their perspective is very sex focused. Like, oh, well, if you wouldn't teach a kid about um, sex acts, why would you bring being gay into it? But but it, it, it's, it's about a, a way of being and not necessarily just about sex. But it's the sex that panics people, of course. And as you say, like, 
you know, heterosexual uh, as an identity is also related to sex. And the truth is that kids figure sex out much earlier, I think, than people are comfortable admitting. And Mm -hmm. they make, they draw conclusions, and a lot of them are really, like, sort of sweet and funny and confused, but they figure this out, and it's, like, part of the animal nature. And it's very distressing to people to confront that. Do parents now, or do y'all, like, put sexual and gender identity into sort of like the talk or the series of talks uh, around puberty and adolescence. Um, And in that case, it seems like you would just be kind of introducing the idea that there are people who are heterosexuals and people who are, it's like very scientific, right? Um, But that's, that's separate from the sort of much richer notion of a gay and lesbian and, you know, LGBT community and like a political history and like all of that stuff that's like, you could, in theory, talk about before you had that sex talk. Yeah, that talk. stuff is easier. Yeah. <laughs> it's, inter- it's interesting to think about the... Or- 25 gay scientists. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, like, it's a funny idea to think about, like, what does is, what is gay then mean to that child if it's not about sex? Like, because you, as a gay person, you experience the sex part, the attraction part first. Well, maybe right? it's about love. Yeah, I was going to say, when yeah. you're talking to kids about ge- oh. relationships in general... Brian's like, oh, yeah, love. 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 See, you forgot about it. that part. That's Brian it. was like... This. Yeah. No, this is why I'm not speaking. No, 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 no. <laughs> but also, even when your kids are very little... I mean, I know some people talk to their kids about yeah. sex, like extremely no, early so then they never yeah. have to get over that weird awkward yeah. hump when they're older we yeah. unfortunately didn't do it that way and I really regret it I remember an old colleague of ours Hannah Rosen said mm-hmm. that she just like one day in the swimming pool when her kid was like two and a half she was like this is sex yeah. <laughs> I was like damn I wish we had done that yeah. and we hadn't but anyway yeah, yeah the, love, the love. early conversations about sex whether heterosexual or homosexual is is uh, is two people love, love you. when two other. people love each yes. other they yeah Totally. And okay. that definitely, like, yeah. that is, like, a way of, that is simplifying what Christina's talking about, but it's, like, a accessible to a child to talk about mm-hmm. sex in those terms. And I also think that the notion of um, one talk is kind of outdated yeah. at this yeah. point, sure. right? Sure. And it's sort of, like, you're laying the groundwork because the kids are coming home hearing these conversations in school or among friends about, you know— Oh God! I'm this will. Sh- I, I don't even have like a pop cultural referent, but they'll hear something sort of vaguely pop cultural and say, "Look, this person said that they're gay or whatever," you know, and that gives you an opportunity to have that conversation mm-hmm, mm-hmm. even before they have like because the language around um, attraction and your own sexual maturity is like not. It's not like a. It's not a verbal language. It's yeah. like this sort of interior yeah. language, and so you're just providing them with like an alphabet, and sooner or later they're going to figure out how to spell. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's such a good analogy. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Talking yeah. about this stuff also strikes me similarly to like when I think about how white people should talk to their yes. kids about race. Mm-hmm. Like there's there's certainly like a lot of people I think who think it's better to like not talk about it and yes. like we don't see you know we don't see race but obviously like all the research says that's not a good yes. idea at all and so I think the same about this probably for straight parents is like it's just better to have it be part of <laughs> the conversation yeah. early and then it feels it's much less like we're not pretending we live in a world that we don't live in yeah yeah the other thing that I was thinking about that's similar to that Allison is um, when I have been looking at some like kids books about LGBT history or something like it's hard to talk about that or like what you were talking about, Brian, you know, about LGBT culture and and a political, you know, history 
without it focusing on a lot of bad stuff, discrimination. And, you know, I was I was reading a book that was like meant for kids the other day, like, oh, maybe this would be good for my niece or something. And it was like the assassination of Harvey Milk. I was like, (laughs) "Okay, like now we have to talk about like sometimes people kill each other. Like it. I mean, this is everything. This is parenting. I feel like it wasn't like this for our parents because they just they didn't talk about it. No. And I think it's sort of that indicates where we are politically you know like it, it's like like you said about race it's the same it's it's really the same conversation or it's an analogous conversation because um you because both of my children are black so trying to teach them about blackness specifically does involve teaching them all the stuff that is a tremendous right. bummer yeah yeah you and know? it's important and you, to talk about and you can't there's no there's no like dolling it up you know it's just like yeah some people think black people are lesser and that guided like all of american history until like right now and saying i mean kids can kind of deal with a lot more than i think people think they can and they sort of they can try and make sense of that even though it doesn't really make a lot of sense and i think sex and sexuality works kind of the same way and they can you know, when I explain to them the injustice of, like, you know, from those 50 books of great great women scientists, like, the injustice of Marie Curie not, like, being acknowledged as a great scientist or whatever, like, they can make sense of that. And it's, and it's important that they do. I think that's all the time we have for this incredibly vital and wonderful discussion. Thank you so much for joining us, Allison. It was great to have you on. Thanks for having me. Thank you for speaking for the entire straight community. (laughs) (laughs) I did everyone proud. Your perspective is valid and appreciated. (laughs) Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So, first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, Cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community, which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back. In late October, news broke of a heartbreaking custody battle between two divorced parents in Koppel, Texas, centered around the gender identity of their seven-year-old daughter, Luna Younger. 
Luna has identified as a girl since she was about three and has been professionally diagnosed with gender dysphoria. Her mother has supported Luna's desire to socially transition by dressing in feminine clothing, growing her hair long, and changing her name. Meanwhile, her father has made waves in conservative media by rejecting Luna's trans identity and claiming that she wants to live as a boy when in his care, though a slew of other family members, doctors, school staff, and therapists have denied this. As the case stands now, the parents have joint custody, and while that's on appeal, Luna must move between one household that supports who she is and another that actively undermines it. If that weren't hellish enough, her case has also become the focal point of a conservative panic around trans youth and their health care, with Ted Cruz calling Luna, quote, a pawn in a left-wing political agenda, end quote, and Texas Governor Greg Abbott reportedly directing state agencies to investigate the family. Uh, Much of the drama here centers on the notion that Luna's mother and other trans-affirming parents like her are out to quote-unquote chemically castrate their young children and force them to undergo other scary-sounding medical procedures that the child might later regret. We want to say it up front here on the podcast that this is not true. This is not what happens. Uh, But to help us unpack why and how it is untrue, we're joined today by Dr. Laura Edwards-Leeper, a clinical psychologist at Pacific University who specializes in child psychology, gender nonconformity, and transgender care. Thanks so much for being here with us today. Thanks for having me. So we're actually not going to talk in too much detail about the case today, but I want to point our listeners to a really great piece over in Vox uh, by Caitlin Burns called uh, What the Battle Over a Seven-Year-Old Trans Girl Could Mean for Families Nationwide. If you want to know more about this case in particular, there's a, there'll be a link on the show page, but um, that, that piece really gets into the details. Um, what we want to use it for today is as a jumping off point for a broader discussion um, about trans youth healthcare. So when a child like Luna comes to a parent um, with a sense that they would like to uh, socially transition or express their gender differently, what is the current sort of medical professional advice on t- to do for a parent in that case? Well, typically the best thing to do is to first consult with a professional who... Uh-huh you know, is knowledgeable in this area and trained to work with young children and fully understands the complexities of child development and, you know, mm-hmm. is able to take some time with the family to really understand, you know, what what's going on and what's in the child's best interest. And then through that assessment, if it seems clear that the child, you know, is, is really strongly pushing for presenting in a different gender from what they were assigned, Mm -hmm. then many times that is the recommended course of action, particularly if it's going to alleviate a lot of psychological and emotional distress, improve behavioral issues that might be um, present because of the gender dysphoria. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that, you know, that often is the case in some cases, in some situations. Right, and so it so it starts with with yeah like this consultation with sort of like a therapist or psychologist or someone like that who can who can add more guidance. But we're not talking, and, and I said this already, but we're not talking about medical interventions at this stage of the game, right? When you're talking about a young child, absolutely not. We ne- would never intervene medically um, with a child that hasn't even reached puberty yet. Mm-hmm. And 
one thing that's stuck out to me as I've you know read about the case in Texas and several other articles that I've read about trans kids and you know the reaction to that, especially in right wing media, is it seems like there's a real fixation on the the body of the child in question. You know, whenever there's a discussion about trans and gender affirming care for kids, we hear it talked about in terms of a quote unquote sex change. Or, you know, worried about making um, irreversible changes to a child's body. Where do you think that fixation and that fear comes from? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I think that our culture is just very focused on um, on sexuality and, you know, and a fear of, you know, children, I think, guess in particular, being sexual beings. So maybe that's part of it. You know, I think that you know, there are are certainly fears that people have around homosexuality that may play into that. Um, But, you know, it's, it's really misguided for people to focus on that, you know, with, with anyone, I mean, anybody, any gender dysphoric person, Mm -hmm. transgender people, adults, adolescents, and, you know, especially children, um, because we're not, you know, we're not even thinking about that with younger children. Basically, we're just considering allowing and supporting the child in presenting themselves in their identity and um, being true to themselves. And so sometimes that can mean changing their name and pronouns. It can mean changing their gender expression, which would be things like clothing or hairstyle, um, and also just allowing them to engage in the kinds of activities that they're drawn toward and not um, kind of forcing them into what's considered stereotypically masculine or feminine types of play and activities. Yeah. And how does that change as a child approaches puberty? A lot of it continues to stay the same. The only thing that that we start to consider in some cases as a child starts to um, progress towards puberty is, you know, the consideration of puberty suppressing medication. The goal of that is just to give the child more time to continue sorting out their identity as they're, you know, a little more mature as they're maturing into adolescence and they're, you know, cognitively, emotionally, psychologically able to understand themselves in the world in a, in a bit more of a sophisticated manner. Um, it gives them time to to really think about how they want to proceed with their identity, how they, you know, and to really reflect on how they feel about their identity and what kinds, if any, you know, other medical interventions they might want to do when they get older. It's interesting uh, reading up on this and, and talking to you about it. Like, y- y- there's a real sense that the approach here should be that the child needs to lead, and I think that that is probably like challenging for a lot of parents who might approach parenting generally as as a thing that uh, where their their role is to sort of lead the child and guide the child. And you're talking about having, you know, quite young children. Uh, in fact, um, sort of taking the lead and in, 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 in their sort of self-determination. How do you think about, um, you know, shifting parents' view of that in these cases? Because it seems like that could be a real, um, a real paradigm shift uh, for, for a lot of parents. Well, I guess I don't see it quite so black and white. Uh-huh. I, I mean, I, I do think that there is certainly an element of taking the child's lead, but it really has to be done in a very thoughtful and balanced manner um, because children are children. And so, you know, the way that they understand the world and, 
just think about everything, including gender, is very concrete and black and white, mm. um, just because of the state of their brain development at young ages. And so, mm. um, so yes, I mean, absolutely, we need to follow the child's lead, but some children's gender does fluctuate. And for example, I've wor- I worked with a child who told me that they felt like a boy when it rained. <laughs> and so, and we, I, you know, I live in Portland, Oregon, so it rains a lot here. So lot. I don't know what that <laughs> yeah. says about their gender identity. But, you know, so some kids really are, you know, one day they may feel one way, one day they may feel another way. And it's critical that we're not assuming that the way a child feels at one point in time is necessarily going to predict how they feel tomorrow or next year or five years from now or when they're 25 years old or beyond. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's that's the challenge and that's why having you know professional guidance um, is mm-hmm. really, really helpful for a lot of these parents and families because there is a lot in the news right now about how to best support these kids and and it's very, you know, it's kind of like either you support them or you don't. And, you know, I kind of see it as, you know, there being a lot more nuance to it um, that people aren't always um, recognizing. Um, So, but I do think that, you know, they have sometimes work with parents who have a fear that if they, you know, allow their child to play with the toys that they want to play with, even if they don't align from a kind of stereotypical um, gendered manner with, the assigned gender of the child, that that's somehow going to make the child transgender or, Mm. you know, cause more confusion. And I can say um, very confidently that that is not going to happen. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I've never seen that happen. But in fact, it actually has a very positive effect when children are allowed to, um, you know, just engage in the things they that bring them joy and happiness. And that kind of gets more into the just in my mind, the problem with the gender binary that we have in our culture that, you know, we um, kind of enforce upon children that is really damaging to them as they grow up, whether they're transgender or cisgender or somewhere in between non-binary or some other Mm -hmm. um, gender. So in the Vox article that I mentioned uh, at the top of the segment, um, they talk about how a number of legislators, uh, conservatives around the country are threatening bills, none of these, as far as I know, have been really advanced yet, but are threatening bills that could outlaw things like puberty blockers or make it even uh, child abuse, quote unquote, to allow a kid to transition. If that sort of thing happened, what would be the impact on on the kids you work with and just the work you do generally? That would be extremely detrimental um, for these kids. I mean, I can't, I, mean, I honestly can't imagine how horrible that would be if um, that ends, that were to end up happening, you know, it's been incredible to see at, with not just you know my own clinical experience, but some research now that supports that these young children who are supported in their identities do very well psychologically. Um, and you know, and prior to being supported, they do not do well. <laughs> and I've worked with with children who, whose parents and sometimes the the therapist involved took a more kind of behavioral approach to try to just help the child feel comfortable in their assigned gender and the body that they were given. And it didn't work. And, you know, the child's emotional behavioral 
problems were just horrible. And so the parents then eventually decided they couldn't do that anymore because that felt like child abuse. And so, you know, they sought a different kind of help and began supporting their child. And many of them talk about it being like flipping a switch that, you know, suddenly their child's mental health problems improved and they were confident and had friends and, um, you know, no more behavioral problems, no more emotional problems. So, yeah, it would be extremely um, detrimental for these kids if, you know, if legislature was to go forward in that way. Um, and same with the medical stuff, you know, I think for the adolescents that, you know, we've come so far with being able to support children in a way that's um, for those who, again, you know, who who really need it and will benefit from it. It's been such an amazing um, intervention, both the blockers and then being able to use hormone treatment and sometimes surgeries for older adolescents um, and improving their quality of life and improving their mental health symptoms and all of that, that to take that away, particularly, you know, with the medical stuff with adolescents, um, with all the risk they have of severe mental health issues, including suicide, self-harm, all of that, that could be extremely detrimental. Yeah. On that note, as we wrap up this segment, I wonder if you could just distill one or a couple key takeaways for our listeners, you know, as as they go out into the holiday season prepared to possibly um, debunk myths or or better the understanding of the people around them about, you know, care for trans kids. Um, I mean, I think the the most important thing is just you know, to encourage people to not get so stuck on the binary um, when it comes to gender and to, you know, get try to move away from thinking that <clears throat> certain toys are for boys and certain toys are for girls and certain colors are for boys and certain colors are for girls and that um, clothing, you know, all of it. And that, you know, just allowing kids to be kids and be happy and, you know, in situations where, they feel strongly about their gender identity and, you know, they're um, clear about that, you know, that they really do benefit from being supported in that. And in other cases, if they just don't have the interests that align with their assigned gender, they should be, you know, the child should be, should be supported in that, you know, and to not make children feel ashamed or, embarrassed or that it's not okay to play with the toys they want to play with um, and do the things they want to do. I mean, they're going to be healthier people, um, whether, whether they're ultimately transgender or cisgender or something else, um, if they're allowed to follow their heart and be who they are. Yeah. Well, Dr. Edward Sleeper, thank you so much for first for the work you do, uh, but then second for being on the show with us. I think it's been really, really helpful. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I learned a lot. Thank you so much. I think that's about it for this month. But before we go, I think we have time to talk about our updates to the gay agenda. Yes. And um, if I can go first, because I'm, I'm worried about I'm worried about Christina beating me to it. <laughs> but um, tomorrow I am going to go see Charlie's Angels, <gasps> starring yeah. the sexiest 
man, woman, or other I can think of, Kristen Stewart, and I'm very excited about it. It looks totally ridiculous, but <sighs> totally fun. She's so good. She's such a bad actress, but I'll watch her do anything. She's, yeah. She's, you know, if you look like that, I don't think you have to be a good actor. No, you yeah. don't. I, we, you know. So the movie that I was talking about um, that I recently watched was Personal Shopper. Yep. Yeah. Very first scene, like no dialogue has been spoken yet. She walks out in a leather jacket, and I'm just like, mm. And my wife goes, you're allowed to make three more of those noises for the rest of this film. <laughs> Use them wisely. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, she, we value her because of the way she looks staring into middle distance with no expression on her face. Yes. We don't value her for her acting. Um, I'm going to recommend One Day at a Time. It's a sitcom that aired for a couple seasons on Netflix and is now going to be resurrected at Pop. Um, it's about a Cuban-American family in L.A., um, the daughter in the family, Elena, is, um, I believe, in high school. She's gay. She dates a non-binary person named Sid. Um, and it's just such a positive view of how families can, like, learn about and deal with and support a queer kid. Um, the show is just so, so corny. And I think that's a good thing, actually, in, mm-hmm. in this case. It takes on, like, pretty difficult issues but always wraps them into a bow at the end of the episode. Um, there's some good-natured jokes about how this um, Elena is, like, a super activist. The grandma, like, doesn't understand the word Latinx. And, like, right. but, but the jokes are never punching down. Um, and, and I think it's just a, a very lovely vision of, like, a queer youth that doesn't diminish them. The other one I'm going to recommend is Lumberjanes, which is a series of comics and graphic novels about girls at a kind of scouting camp. Um, And so there's like a core group of girls and there's actually one non-binary character in the group too. One of the girls is trans. Uh, Two of the girls have a romance together. And it's just really fun and adventurous and full of like supernatural characters. Um, The two things that I picked are both visual because I think although I do love a lot of queer books – I think it can be really powerful to actually see like a wide variety of what queer people can look like. Um, mm-hmm, yeah. And both of these shows do a really good job of, um, you know, showing having like queer characters being queer, but also not having that be like their only characteristic yeah. um, and also not um, reducing their storylines to ones of trauma. Like both of the stories are pre- have pretty optimistic visions of what queer life can look like. Um, highly recommend both of them. So I was thinking uh, about a movie I wish I wish I had seen younger because I think it would have it would have done a lot of the things we were talking about earlier for me. Um, and that is The Birdcage, actually. Um, I love that movie. I, you know, I think it's probably a film for slightly older kids, but not, I don't think you have to be super old. Um, and I think it's great because it sort of is a perfect account of like the value of difference um, and like what forcing people into conformity, how painful that can be and how impoverishing that can be to, to a life. Um, I think it, It shows different sorts of families, of course. Um, And then it has just the fun uh, identity exploration that drag uh, offers. Um, And so I think, you know, a younger child would just have a lot of fun watching, you know, the drag queens who uh, are a type of clown, I think you could could say. I mean, they probably relate to that. Um, But then you get all of these other sort of messages yeah just about like the value of difference and and the possibilities that could that a life could look like um in a very lighthearted you know 
funny. Um, and then, and then you know, it's politically kind of biting too when you're when you're ready for that kind of part of it for the conservative side of things. But um, I just think it's beautiful and it's it stands up really well. There's some uh, certain aspects that are a little problematic now, but um, most of it, I think, I think works. Um, so yeah, Birdcage is something I would I would love to have seen younger and would love to show to you. Yeah. future nieces and nephews maybe <laughs> all of these also are very good for adults too i mean mm-hmm. I, I watch it at least once a year yeah. <laughs> like, yeah all right i think that is it for november please send us feedback and topic ideas at outwardpodcast at slate.com or via facebook and twitter at slate outward we're also always looking for questions uh for potential advice segments so please send those our way too Thank you to Melissa Kaplan, who provided engineering assistance for this episode. Our producer is the wonderful Daniel Schrader. June Thomas is senior managing producer of Slate Podcast and Insider Fact, one of the gay mafia's most prized recruiters. (laughs) (laughs) If you like Outward, please subscribe in your podcast app, tell your friends about it, and rate and review the show so others can find it. We'll be back in your feeds on December 18th. Uh, Goodbye, everyone. Bye. Thank you, guys. See you, Christina. Bye. Bye, everybody. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two to one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community, which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. 
Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back.